You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I am your host, Tony Lopes. With us today is Natalie Nixon, the president of Figure Eight Thinking. Hey, Natalie, how are you? Hey, Tony, doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And I can't wait to pick your brain because you are such an amazing uh, forward thinker and innovator in the space. And, And just from the conversation we had leading into this podcast episode, I was just fascinated by everything that you were saying and all the cool things that you're doing with figure eight thinking. Right. Well, I have, a, I, have a, I always say I have a really loopy background. I have a background in cultural anthropology and fashion. And I got into the fashion industry really out of need uh, when I was living in New York City in my early 20s, many years ago. I um, naively started a hat design business called Nat's Hats because I was sewing my entire wardrobe because I couldn't afford to buy anything. And my friends looked at me and they said, Nat, you really could sell this. And after enough encouragement, I took the plunge and I really caught the bug for business launching Nat's Hats. I really love taking something from an idea and conceptual level and seeing people really interact with my tangible now manifested product. Um, Some years later after that, I ended up earning a master's degree in global textile marketing. Mm -hmm. That took me to live and study in Israel and Germany. And after that, I was I received an offer to join a division of the limited brands. Wow. Uh, it's a company now that's standalone, out, not, no longer a daughter company of the limited. It's called Mast Industries and it's a, a sourcing co- company. And so what sourcing does in the fashion industry is um, you know, the shirt you're wearing, the jeans I'm wearing. Someone has to figure out how to get that made at the lowest cost, the highest quality and the shortest lead time. And that was an incredible chapter of global travel for me. I ended up living, working in Sri Lanka and Portugal, making bras and panties for Victoria's Secret, (laughs) traveled a lot throughout Asia. I always say what anthropology gave me was um, the worm's eye view of society because we're sociology, economics might kind of give us the 30,000 foot level view of what's happening in our world. Anthropologists have to dig down into the ground level to understand how to frame a question differently. And fashion gave me an appreciation for the technology and logistics side of a business, but it also really equipped me to not underestimate the value of beauty and desire and aesthetics when you are building consumer insight. So both have been incredibly valuable. That's absolutely fascinating. And that journey, you're, you're truncating that a lot because I know we talked a lot about your experience working in all of those facets, working your way up to Victoria's Secret and being a big part of their supply chain to begin with. So you had a lot of operational experience, I'm assuming. What were sort of the pitfalls that were, you were seeing in, in fashion production from an operational perspective? Oh, gosh. Well, what most people don't realize about the fashion industry, who that is, who have never worked in the fashion industry, I always say people who've never worked in fashion either think it's frivolous or that it's glamorous and it's not frivolous and it's not glamorous. Uh, probably only two percent of the industry is sexy. It, it, it is a business mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it is a multi-billion with a B dollar business. So 
what I really got to understand was the complexity of figuring out how do you integrate so many different moving parts so that, for example, let's say you're talking about a T-shirt with a trim collar and top stitching thread. Well, that thread, the fabric color, the, the actual fabric itself and that that um, the facing along the collar all have to look like they came from all the fabric was sourced from the same mill and the, and the entire garment was sewn in the same factory. When in fact, the thread may have come from uh, one country A, dyed in country B, wow. uh, in terms of spinning process. Uh, the, the fabric itself may have been, with the, the, the t-shirt that's on one table, that fabric lot may have come from several different countries, four different mills, the cut and sew operation might've come from, from different countries, et cetera. So the pitfalls I saw were the breakdown and and being willing to share, being transparent and being collaborative, um, which has come full circle. And what I really harp on and really try to encourage my clients to do today. And that fear really comes from um, a perception that there's going to be a loss if I give my secret away. And today in a global business environment, you, you really have to kind of pull back the veil, pull back the curtain and be willing to share what your golden secrets are. But you also have to be willing uh, to ask for help, uh, take advantage of all the, the partners that you can tap into for advice and new ways of working. Right. Yeah. And it's fascinating that you bring that up because we are kind of headed more in that direction globally, right? As a business organization, it's expanding and expanding and expanding. And we need to find ways to become more collaborative, more communicative, as you said. So we'll be talking a lot about that today with you because that's exactly what you're developing through figure eight thinking. So now let's ramp that up. So you've taken that experience. You decided to start this organization, figure eight thinking. Tell us about figure eight thinking, what it is, who it benefits and how you got involved in it. So that's a great question. And we're actually missing a, a significant chapter in between uh, uh, Victoria's Secret Mast Industries and launching Figure Eight Thinking. I was actually a professor for, six, for 16 years and um, the opportunity to become a professor was amazing. Mm-hmm. I started out at Philadelphia University as an assistant professor in the fashion management program, which is teaching students the business of fashion. Um, about five years into that, I decided once again, naively uh, to earn a PhD while working full time. My mentors were recommending to me to do that because I was a good professor and it would give me a lot of options within higher education. Um, the field in which I studied is something called design management and design management is a super integrative field that looks at the intersection of creativity and business design and strategy. And I absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was able to bring in my cultural anthropology, qualitative research skills and interests. And I did work in my research in an area called service design. When I completed that in four years, um, it was around 20, it was actually completed in 2010. Fast forward about um, two years after that, I I launched um, in collaboration with, with some colleagues the strategic design MBA program. So this was a, an executive MBA program that integrated a lot of the principles I had learned from service design, design management, principally design thinking. And design thinking is a problem solving process. I always say it's 50% qualitative research and 50% the application of design principles like 
visualizing data Mm -hmm. and prototyping and doing lateral thinking. Uh, So I'm in the midst of of launching this strategic design MBA program and TEDx Philadelphia comes along. I get nominated to speak and I decide to speak about something I was I was I was basically saying that the future of work is jazz. And I was it was the first opportunity I had to not do such academic speak about my dissertation and really share with people why it was going to be so important to be improvisational, to think on your feet, to be collaborative, to break down silos, to be adaptive, because improvisation is actually a complex system. And Mm -hmm. I was looking at it through the lens of jazz music. After I gave that TEDx talk, I started getting invited into companies to share and give workshops about what I spoke on. And after maybe only six months of that, my husband looked at me and he said, babe, this is becoming a thing. I think you need to formalize this. And so I launched Figure Eight Thinking and it literally was my side hustle. It was the repository for my practice as as an academic. And I realized probably two years after that, that I was loving the projects that I was getting through Figure Eight Thinking. And I took a, um, the summer of 2016, I went through a major reflection and, 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 envisioning work on myself and decided to make a leap and decided, you know, after 15 years at that time of having been a professor had been amazing. And I wanted to give this a try. So in 2017, I resigned from my academic post. And um, as we, you and I speak today, I will be celebrating three years of building a figure eight thinking this June, 2020. Awesome. Congratulations. In June, 2020, quick sidebar is when your book comes out. Thank you. Is that coincidental yeah. or <laughs> is that no, to celebrate? You know what? Oh my goodness. I thank you, Tony. Yeah, I no problem. That's so silly. I think so much because you're in the weeds of yep. just grinding yeah. and just getting yep. the work done. Yep. Oh, that's such a nice uh well, I don't I don't believe in coincidence. That's 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 really awesome. It'd yeah. It'd be a great way to celebrate. A great way to celebrate. Yeah, the <laughs> book is is called The Creativity Leap. Mm-hmm. Unleash curiosity, improvisation, and intuition at work. But you had asked me, you know, what's what's the purpose of figure eight thinking? Right. Yeah. My clients, what do we like to do? So I'm a creativity strategist. And in that work, I advise leaders and companies on how to apply creativity and strategic foresight mm-hmm. in order to get to more transformative business results. And I really intentionally start with the word and the principles of creativity, not innovation, because I believe creativity is the engine for innovation. What was happening in a lot of my corporate client advisory work is that everyone is scrambling to build a culture of innovation and we've got to be innovative. And I had this thinking feeling that we're kind of talking over and around each other when we talk, when we throw out the word innovation. And so I thought, why is this bugging me? And what's my recommendation? How am I, how am I going to be more helpful instead mm-hmm. of just complaining about it? And so uh, I methodically, and I mean, retrospectively now, it feels methodically in the time I was doing it, it felt, felt a, bit, a bit hodgepodge. But I realized I had a way of helping people to optimize the creativity in themselves and in their organizations so that they could actually innovate in a sustainable way. Um, so my clients have ranged from um, Bloomberg and Comcast and VaynerMedia, as well as nonprofit organizations 
like Living Cities and Independence Media Foundation here in Philadelphia. And I really enjoy the opportunity to help people think about how they can anticipate through foresight what is to come. Because foresight is not about predicting the future. Right. It's not about looking into a crystal ball. But it's, it's about doing a lot of scenario planning and identifying multiple possible futures. So in that way, I hope that our work is helping organizations become more dynamic versions of themselves. That's really interesting. So what are some of the ways that you help them to work through this process? And I love how you've steered away from the overuse of the word innovation and focused on creativity. And and just a quick sidebar, I don't know if you've ever read this book or not, but I got turned on to it recently by another guest, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And he actually, yeah, check it out. It's a, a great book. And he talks about sort of this mysticism that's part of the creative process. He's not the only one to talk about that, by the way, but there's a book called Big Magic as well that talks about that. Yes. Both of those books are kind of about that same mysticism around creativity, if you will. And in War of Art, Stephen Pressfield actually talks a lot about how entrepreneurs and creatives are actually really similar in the context that, yes, one uses the medium of art, whether it's, you know, written word or, or visual arts, um, and the other uses business as, as their medium to create, but they really have that same creative energy. So it's interesting that you've shifted more towards that creative approach. Yes. So what, are, what are some of the tools that you use, if you're willing to share, to help bolster that uh, strategic and creative foresight, as you put it? Yeah, well, thank you for that. I absolutely agree, agree with those two thought leaders. Creativity is something that we have ghettoized in the arts. Right. And that's not fair to artists and it's not beneficial to our society at large because to be human is the hardwired to be creative. Right. So one of the things I really like to emphasize is that there is a business ROI of creativity. Creativity is not some foo-foo, fluffy add-on. But the three things I like to always point out are the following. When we um, exercise creativity by amplifying wonder, digging into rigor, because again, I, I define creativity as toggling between wonder and rigor. Here are a couple of examples of the business results. One business result is that when we exercise our creativity in organizations, we necessarily have to engage in inventive thinking. And when we are using our imaginations beyond only staring at what, what, what we've always done, these are our constraints, we've got to keep uh, coloring within the lines. But when we allow ourselves and our leadership gives us permission to really do inventive thinking, one of the things that results are different business models. Mm-hmm. When, we, I, when we uncover different business models, then we often are led to new revenue streams and new strategic partnerships. The new revenue streams is a, is a direct outcome of that inventiveness, which comes from creativity. A second business result is that the process we have to use that you, 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 we see this in artists. Let's you know, say the example of dancers or jazz musicians. Um, you have to engage in more collaborative work, right? Um, we understand the creative process, even though a lot of creativity necessarily has some solitary, solo, digging in work that's part of it. But, but creative, when we are at our most optimal create, create creative selves, we are super curious and we're looking for inspiration. And our teachers are coming from all sorts of places. So the kind of cognitive diversity 
that I encourage organizations to build so that they can be more collaborative is absolutely essential. So what happens in an organization where you're more collaborative? When you are more collaborative, you have to begin to break down silos. When you break down silos, efficiencies go up. And when efficiencies go up, costs go down. Mm -hmm. That's another example of a business outcome because of creativity. A third business outcome because of creativity um, is that you become hyper obsessed with your customer, with the people who are buying your products and services. Creativity requires us to have an outward focus again, because that's the source of inspiration and the new and um, sometimes the old, but it's about the source of how we can remix things. So when you, when you shift the gaze, looking more outwardly to the, to the consumer, to the people and how they're, they're using your stuff that you're peddling, that you're selling, that leads to processes that, that inspire much greater brand loyalty, because instead of churning out the next greatest app, that's cool to you or a product or service that you guys have always made and done. So we're just going to keep doing it for the next 50 years. You necessarily have to edit, you have to tweak, you have to redefine or maybe chuck something off to the side and start all over again. And consumers can smell authenticity from miles away. Right. So they absolutely appreciate and, and know when something's right. That's one of the reasons why the Blackberry is no longer popular. And I'm holding in my hand an iPhone yep. is super popular because the, they, they, the, the teams at Apple uh, were rigorous about falling in love with people's problems not just falling in love with the technology. So those are just three examples of the business ROI of creativity that I focus in on with my clients. Brilliant. Brilliant. By the way, just sitting here, there were a couple of subtextual things that I picked up as well. One of the things that all of these encompass as well is increasing open-mindedness within the organization. And then once I, what I'm hearing at least subtextually is that once you start to build that open-minded culture, like Apple, like VaynerMedia, like Comcast, like a lot of these organizations you've worked with, the super mind of the organization itself becomes associated with being an innovative and creative and revolutionary and disruptive brand okay. automatically. You're automatically just boosting this. And then I yes, love the, the, the concept of this hyper obsession with the target audience, right? And it shifts from this perspective of I and we, this internal perspective, whether it's uh, individualistic or, or communal to this other perspective, right? Of them, of the client, of the, the bread and butter of the business, which is almost right. a, a no brainer, but businesses frequently just get, we forget. they forget, right? And then, and then third, for me, at least that sub layer of no complacency. Silos are, are busted down. What we've done, the old is no longer the, the, the Bible, for lack of a better term, of our business. And we're going to go into the future with an open mind and this sort of open arm approach where we're learning on a constant basis, which is just going to shift the entire mindset again. Brilliant. Love it. Awesome. Thank you for that feedback. And everything that you've just built on and added to, to these ideas really points out that it requires courage, right? Yeah. It requires courage to relinquish a bit of control. That, that's what part of what's implicit and what I'm advising among leaders 
to, as we like to say in Philly with the Sixers, trust the process, <laughs> right? And um, really be open to change. You know, having come from academia, which was a big chapter of my career for 16 years, right. I'm going to tell a light bulb joke, uh, which is how many tenured faculty does it take to change a light bulb? What's the answer? And the answer is change <laughs> just because, right? They're, they're really, they can be a little adverse to change. Like right. there's so many industries like that, right, right? right? But to do all these things, to, to be willing to say, you know what, this worked for the past 20 years or two years, and now we need to shift can be really hard to do. And it also right. means that you don't have the answer right away. You've got to really delve into ambiguity and embrace ambiguity. Now we clearly love that, but when you go into an organization, my, my question is, how do you overcome culture shock when you're going into an organization and you have this org that's really buck? I mean, everything is bolted to the ground and they're, hey, we've been doing this for 50 years. Who is this person coming in here telling us we should do differently? What do they know about our industry and blah, blah, blah? We're the experts. How do you shift that mindset or, or what advice do you give to the leaders to help them shift that mindset? Exactly. Well, first of all, the, the willingness has to come from leadership. And let me disqualify, I'm not only talking about top-down leaders, certainly that's typically who I'm talking to initially, but it's important to identify what I call emergent leaders. There are leaders on the margins, there are leaders who might be more junior, there are leaders who are coming from, who might be new to the organization, but coming from a different sector, so they have completely fresh eyes, or they're from the same sector, but a different company. Again, fresh eyes. So it's important to build a group of allies who are primed to be open and receptive to the change. So that, that's, that's the first thing. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the time I'm called in uh, when disruption has, has started to, 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 to rear its head. So uh, an upstart has begun to eat the lunch of a legacy organization and there's a big freak out moment happening. And part of the, the work is, um, is, um, you know, call, calling people down from the tower so, so that so they, they, can, they can regain perspective in a different way. Right. So the first thing is identifying who are the allies and the leaders in the organization who are receptive to the change. And the second thing is it has to be a collaboratively built process that where people, where people have a realistic expectation of timeline. So culture change starts with change in mindset, which leads to change in behaviors which leads to culture change. And that does not happen overnight. So that, that reality check that in commitment to be in it for the long haul is really essential. Um, and then uh, the third thing is to really uh, be accepting and willing to take on much more of an experimental approach and prototype the ideas. What I think, in my opinion, in my experience, is not the way to go about culture changes to have a select group of people only working on the initiative behind closed doors. And then six months, a year later, they do a big ta-da reveal and the idea is gilded in gold and put up on a shelf. And then it might fall flat with people right. because what hasn't happened is you haven't taken a prototype approach that really embraces build, learn, and sorry, I said that wrong. Um, design, build, learn, right? Which is really that you're doing this iterative process of figuring out what can we tweak. And so you're testing in intermediate stages with your colleagues and with your 
clients in order to understand, are we, do we have this right? How do we have to tweak this? Think of it like piano tuning, right? When you tune a piano, it's, it's very subtle. There's all sorts of, of, of tweaks that have to be made. And the same thing happens when you're doing the process of change management. Fascinating. And you segued very nicely into a couple of other questions that, that I was thinking about. One was that amount of time that you think it takes to sort of get from this inception of, okay, we're going to put a team in place to do this. And then the outcomes that you're looking at. And when you get to those outcomes, do you advise most organizations to pump out a minimum viable product or something along those lines? Because that offers some proof in the pudding, right? Yes. Show and tell early and often show and tell the mistakes, the pitfalls and show and tell the small wins. Um, Because often here's the other thing about change. We know in systems design, Sometimes the the biggest changes happen through a, a, a fissure, a crack in the system, right? And sometimes the shift is incremental and sometimes the shift is exponential. If it ends up at the end of the process that it's an incremental shift or a, an, a, a perceived incremental shift, if people weren't brought along in the process, then their response is going to be like, so we took all this time and spent all this money for that. I don't get it. They don't, they didn't have an inside view of the process of understanding all of the testing and feedback that got to that fine tuned result. Interesting. And it helps them to storytell, right? Which yes, just naturally engages people. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, another yes. thing, I just want to go back because I think you hit a grand slam with uh, a way that you put your explanation about um, engaging in culture, culture change or culture shift. And you said it starts with mindset, then that turns into a behavior, which then ultimately turns into a uh, culture change. So thank you for that. I thought that was brilliant. Um, and I, I <laughs> love you. how, how you've put this show and tell often into how that works into storytelling. So for this, are you advising them? It sounds like you're advising at least to me. So I'm asking this question to, to clarify a little bit. Are you advising your clients that they should put a separate team completely siloed, for lack of a better term, and pardon, pardon the pun of reusing that word, to work on these innovative things? Or, or because you, you touched on the point that um, you should show the failures, show the wins and the successes, and kind of build this story of the testing and the feedback as well. But in a way, you're kind of, sort of setting them aside? Am I getting that correctly to a degree? Yeah, because part of the reality is you can't have too many cooks in the kitchen. Right. But one of the ways that you counter the kind of clickishness is if you can pull in allies from different elements and layers of the organization. So it's not only coming from one department or one level of expertise, but in that way, you are pulling in the perspective from, from various areas of the organization. And it's super important for each of those people to, to uh, go back out and report back out. Now, Got the it. other thing that's really important, and I, I've seen this go the opposite way, is when you, you get these group of people together who are gung-ho, who are willing and ready and able, but you haven't, you being the company, the, the top leadership, haven't incentivized them to stick with the process because it's a hard process. How do you incentivize them? You have to incentivize them with time, right? right. So right. part of their, their full-time job, you have to appreciate that they're going to need to spend 
additional hours on this. You have to incentivize them this maybe financially and, and demonstrate that you value this time and, and work through an honorarium or through some sort of additional financial benefit because, sorry, and thirdly, you also incentivize this by it becoming theirs and other people's part of their assessment. You know, we value what we measure and we measure what we value. Right. So if we, if we just talk about the X, Y, Z that we're going to focus on for this culture change project, but it doesn't start to become embedded in assessment and how we're evaluating how well we're doing for promotion, et cetera, people aren't going to take it seriously. As soon as you say, you know what, your next pay raise is what we're going to be accounting for is how creative you are. And we define creativity specifically in this way. And in terms of how you're working internally with colleagues, how you're working externally with clients, the new types of ideas and new questions that you post, whatever your metrics are, people will respond to what they realize they're going to be accountable for. Right. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. And, and it's almost like the triple bottom line thinking concept, right? Where you have organizations that are focused on social capitalism, for lack of a better term. And a lot of times, at least up until now, I think we're seeing a shift in that where where there's a lot more meaning and accountability being put into those programs. But initially, say five years ago, a decade ago, it was, yeah, we're going to waste less paper by 2020 or whatever. And it's okay. Yeah, that first of all, that sounds a little self-serving, which is okay. We'll we'll allow you to self-serve a little bit. But who is that really helping aside from you? And, you know, is that really meaningful and impact? So I like the way that you've you've taken the creativity now and added some accountability from the organizational side that they're really going to show that they're investing in it. Yes. Yes. Without that, the results will not be <laughs> to find a point. On it, the results will not be sustainable. Right. Just exactly. Won't. Exactly. It just becomes a, uh, yeah, we tried this. It never worked, but they never really tried it. So how could you exactly. possibly expect an outcome? And there were no metrics assigned to it. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. So, this is a very uh, integral, for lack of a better term, uh, philosophy toward business, I think. Um, and it coincides with sort of the integral age that we may be heading into philosophically as well. But how did this all come to you? I'm curious. We talked a little bit about mysticism. Did you have your own sort of pseudo mystical moment where this kind of uh, an aha moment uh, appeared in your mind? Or how did you put all of this together? Because this goes deep, obviously, in, in, in thought. So I don't want to take away from that either, but, but how did it come to you more or less? Oh, absolutely. I think you can see a pattern in my work in, in my research and my practice and my thinking Mm -hmm. where I am totally appreciative of things that we can't necessarily explain rationally. I mean, even the way I'm defining creativity as talking between wonder and rigor shows that I'm a, I have a really hybrid mind. Yeah. And so, um, this was not a linear process in terms of how I came to, to understand creativity in this particular way. The first element of it was doing that rigorous work of a, of a PhD research while working full time. And even the way I, I look back and I feel like I stumbled upon this theoretical construct called improvisational organizations. I'm a qualitative researcher. I done a ton of interviews. I was, look, I was working with the Ritz Carlton Hotel. And in my research, I was really curious about how do they design exceptional experiences for guests? And in the data, and when you're a qualitative researcher, 
the data is in the form of the interviews and the stories that you're hearing. There were so many references over and over to, well, you know, when it, when it's work, when it's right, it just flows when it's right. It's like jazz. Yep. And I had kind of tucked that to the side. I thought oh, that's, that's probably nothing, but I was at a really frustrating moment and needing to provide to the faculty advisors what my theoretical construct was. And when I referenced it to the side, my advisor said, actually, that's a thing. Go off and start studying that. So the first piece about improvisation and the value of improvisation came through that rigorous process of doing a PhD. The second, um, uh, I'm not going to say the word discovery, but the second aha moment for me came during the chapter of my academic career when I was this program director of the Strategic Design MBA program. And I, my professional network was now expanding to a lot of startup leaders and entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And I was observing that in their origin stories, when they would talk about how I got started, how I made my first million, my first big fail, my first, you know, Steve Brown and funny, all that sort of thing. I kept noticing there was always this moment when they would say something like something told me not to do the deal or something told me to work with her over him. I thought this is really interesting because they're all successful. I think what they're referencing is intuition. We never talk about intuition in business school. You don't talk about it in law school and medical school, but to a successful entrepreneurial leader, it was a thing. And so that took me down this path of, of, of trying to understand what is this pattern recognition, this nudge that I'm sensing. And the third piece really came just from my reading um, a lot of thought leaders. I really love it and respect the work of War Warren Berger. And Warren Berger wrote a great book called A More Beautiful Question. He also has a website called uh, The Book. Sorry, he also has a website called A More Beautiful Question. I think his second book is called The Book of Beautiful Questions. But that I really appreciated primarily because I was seeing that the way Warren Berger was mapping out the role of inquiry and curiosity among leadership in our most innovative companies had such striking parallels to design thinking. Because remember, that was, a lot, that was like the crux of the methodology that I was really focused on. So he talked about how the most innovative companies have leaders to start with big why questions. Why don't we, you know, why do we, why do we always do it X way? Why don't we sell to this market? Then they start uh, asking the bigger what if questions. What if we did start to sell these to this market? What if we totally tossed aside that we've been working? And then they converge into how questions. So that's how I got to the, the role of inquiry and curiosity. And for a while, when I was fiddling with this model of making creativity more accessible, it really was, was, was focusing on improvisation and intuition. And then when I read Warren Berger, I realized that's actually the missing link because curiosity, in my view, is the precursor to empathy. Before you can empathize with anybody, you have to be curious about why do they do it that way? Why do they always sit over here and not with us? Why, why, why? Like you have to first want to lean in and ask a question before you can even begin to empathize. So, and I wanted to create a framework that would be accessible, simple, easy to remember. So that's how I came, came up with the three I framework. The three I's are inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. Interesting. 
Very interesting. Sorry, I need to take a minute to catch up on my notes here. I've been jotting down sure. like a madman. I know exactly what I'm going to be reading this weekend, first and foremost. Oh, so, yeah. Um, I will definitely uh, check out awesome. that book. So it was Inquiry, Inquisition. I'm sorry, one more time. The three eyes. In, the three eyes are Inquiry, Improvisation, and Intuition. And Intuition. Perfect. That is amazing. All right. So now let's talk about how your collaboration with some of these companies came about to begin with. So talk about a hot moment. You've worked with some of the biggest and the baddest in terms of innovators. I mean, VaynerMedia, Gary Vaynerchuk to begin with, I, I would think personally, just because I'm a huge fan, um, mm-hmm. would be a big get. And then Comcast as well, locally, superstar company and and an organization that's known even now with COVID-19, they were one of the first without using it for marketing purposes to say that a lot of their C-suite donated back their salaries to make sure their employees wouldn't get laid off and just surrounded by innovative thinking. Even the origin story, again, going back to their origin story was a very innovative and and sort of uh, disruptive process in what was the inception of cable TV, essentially. Right. Um, Yes. So from your perspective, you build figure eight thinking. And I know I'm going back to just like the first days of figure eight thinking. And did you know from the start, these are the companies I want to work with? Or, you know, how did that process evolve of choosing that list of companies to go for? Did you find them? Did they find you? Did you find each other? How did that all happen? So it was not a linear process. It was not a super deliberate process. I would say, you know, I think most of us have heard a variation of the expression that 90% of business is about relationships and about relationship building. So the relationships I have been the beneficiary of over the years meant that I was able to call up certain people for advice. I was able to ask for an opportunity to share an idea. Uh, you know, remember coming from academia, a lot of what I was being evaluated on was um, my ability to partner with with practice and with industry to share ideas. So I was coming from much more of a of a, of a collaborative uh, place, and I and I also was a, was a more of a practitioner professor. Mm-hmm. So I really valued action based research. So that was super helpful um, always. And I'm also a very um, I realize I'm not an extrovert. I'm actually what people will call an ambivert. I can talk to anybody in the room. I love speaking and I love speaking to, to crowds and crowds of people, thousands of people. But um, there is a point in time where, where I, my energy recharge comes from being to myself. And extroverts, they get recharged by being around people. Mm-hmm. Introverts, they need to be to themselves. I have a, a mix, again, that hybridity. So I would say that the, the building of my business has really come about through um, just valuing relationships, um, being curious, asking if I can help being willing to, to give a lot in the beginning, um, and to share. And, um, you know, I, I, I took some really good advice that wasn't even directed at me specifically, but I was, I was at a women's conference. I I actually, the strategic design MBA program that I had launched was a, was a co-sponsor of at, at the university. And so I was able to sit in on a lot of sessions as a women in tech conference. And, and one of the sessions I sat in on, this was before 
I think this is even before I had given the TEDx Philadelphia talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, a person in the audience asked, how do you get to speak more? I'm a woman, I'm a woman in tech. It's very male dominant. I want to be able to, you know, increase my thought leadership. And one of the women who was a panelist said, you just start showing up. You just start volunteering. You start by sitting on panels. You'll become seen as someone who like, oh, this person keeps being in, in our in our community and in, in our convenings. And then eventually one night, one time you might be asked to could you, you might give in a breakfast keynote or a lunch keynote. And I really took that to heart. And, um, you know, as a as a former professor, I mean, every day my job was that of being an inspiring translator, right? Every day, my work was about telling stories in a compelling way that moved the needle for, for, to, to convert information to knowledge for, for, for people. That's really a lot of what I, I took as my role as a professor. So I was comfortable speaking, but it was just taking the step out to, does anyone really care what I think? Does anyone <laughs> think I, I have anything to, more light to shed. And so I really took that, that advice to heart. And then soon after that, I was nominated to give this TEDx Philadelphia talk and things kind of catapulted after that. But for me, it really comes from a place of starting with relationships, valuing them, being curious, being willing to share uh, and, and give. And um, a lot, a lot will come back to you. That's brilliant. And thank you for sharing that. And you, you put it so succinctly as well. I I'm just, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. I just started teaching as an adjunct at temple and I've been doing the same. I'm teaching, uh, undergraduates in the business school, intellectual property and entertainment law. And so I'm trying to find unique ways to present them with the material so that it sinks in and they can relate to it. And that, it becomes more than just these sort of archaic cases and what do they really mean and how do you apply it and all of those things, giving them the tools. And, and you're right. I, I totally understand your perspective and it's great that you've transitioned that into this uh, opportunity for yourself. So how was it? I'm going to fanboy a little bit. How was it working with Vayner media? Did you work with Gary Vaynerchuk? Directly? Oh my gosh. No, I did not work with, with, okay. with uh, Gary, but I, I did um, work with, Claude Silver, okay. who is their chief heart officer. Love that title. Um, and she is responsible for uh, the people management and people innovation at Vayner. I also worked with a wonderful uh, young man named Malachi. Um, I'm just forgetting Malachi's last name. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but Malachi, <laughs> who works with, with the um, creative teams in this, and he kind of bridges the creative teams and the strategy teams. And I was, I never met Adam Locke, but Adam Locke is um, an, another strategist on, on the creative side who I was able to interview for the book, The Creativity Leap. So um, I was able to interact with uh, folks from the creative side and the strategy side and really helping them to figure out the bridges and the intersections and connections in their work so that they can work more seamlessly and efficiently. Right. And great segue. Now talking about the creativity leap, which comes out on June 23rd of 2020, right? You can pre-order it now on Amazon and everywhere else you like to get your books. Tell us a little bit about, first of all, let's talk about the process of writing a book because that Uh, in and of itself is a huge (laughs) hurdle to overcome. So how did you keep yourself motivated? How did you uh, sort of Dilutes not a great term, but how did you take all of this information and data that you were compiling 
and turn it into this manageable chunk that you could then put into the book itself? Well, I will say that having completed a PhD, finishing a PhD has less to do with how smart you are. I, I re, um, very little to do. I mean, not less to do with how smart you are and a whole lot more to do with, with your capacity for humility. Right. And your able, your ability to reverse engineer a project. It, it, it's a testament to some really great project management skills and discipline and humility because you have to take so much feedback where you have to put aside uh, what this great idea that you thought you had and, um, it, and, and it, take the feedback and keep it moving. So I had that under my belt. I did two drafts of a book proposal. Uh, the first draft I did, I, I learned from um, a business coach I hired that uh, it was way too academic. So I took the feedback and, you know, that, of course, that made sense. I've been an academic for you know 16 years. And um, that coach gave me advice about how to revise it in a way that I could really point out the business case and the marketability for that book. Um, but still, even after having done the second book proposal, I experienced rejection after rejection after rejection. And I'm telling you, I mean, the rejections were either, this is amazing, but I don't have the bandwidth to take this on, or ah, this has already been said, not interested. But it, the, still, the answer was no, 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 no. I was getting incredibly discouraged. And then on a whim, uh, January of 2019, a little over a year ago, so this has happened relatively quickly for me. Um, sorry, and keep in mind, I, I had published a book, but it was a book that I edited mm -hmm. and I wrote one of the chapters in it and it was through an academic publisher. So it was a very different process and experience. This is the first book I've solely authored. And so Jan last January of 2019, uh, I said to myself, you know, maybe no one just, maybe I'm a bad writer. No one really cares about what I have to say. Um, and my husband is my biggest encourager. And he said, no, you, you've published before. You have great ideas. You, you got to hang in there. And I decided the moment of probably a shower moment in the shower in the morning, you know, where your great big ideas come. And I said, let me just try one more time to send my book proposal number two to people who I'm not even going to say I know them. Like I've never met them, but we're email friends. I admire and respect their work. They know a little bit about me. And I said, let me send it to them and say, if you're willing, I would really be deeply appreciative if you would share this with your network and publishing, because I know they had, they had published quite a bit. Mm -hmm. One of those people was Joe Pine, Joseph Pine of Pine and Gilmore, who wrote The Experience Economy, which is another great book. Um, and only way, reason why I was even in communication with Joe Pine is because I naively, once again, when I finished my PhD, I had cited them. And I said, hey, guys, I love your work. I cited you in my, in my dissertation. Here's a copy, like you know, some bedside reading. And they were very sweet. And said, oh, that's so nice. Thank you. And we've just stayed in touch over the years. Joseph Pine forwarded my proposal to the VP of editorial at Barrett Polar, which is a really amazing publisher. It's a B Corp, think, you know, speaking wow. of triple bottom line. And um, within 11 days, I went from being in the doldrums. I can't, I'm not a good writer. No one cares about my ideas. To this is interesting. Let's have a call. To I want to share this with our editorial team and pitch it. To we want to offer you a book contract. So literally, it it it, it switched because of someone's professional generosity. You wow. know the generosity of of Joseph Pine. Um, then came the real work of writing the book, and so I, I basically had five months 
to write the book. I started around April of last year and, ha- and it was due by Labor Day weekend, September, early September of 2019. And the way I wrote it was I had uh, word count goals every day. And the best advice I received was whatever you do when you're writing, do not self-edit. Just just get the words out there on consciousness. Just dump it. Stream of consciousness. And the reality is that there is a terrible little mini me that sits on my shoulder and says, no one cares about this. That's a stupid idea. That's That's already been said. This is silly. And you have to quiet that voice. I had to learn to quiet that voice. And the other mini me had to pop up on my shoulder and say, this is so cool. This is interesting. Say more about that. Everybody wants to hear about this. right? <laughs> so, you know, you have to talk yourself into these things. And there would be some days if I had a, if I had a 600 uh, word count goal, I only got to 422 words, but I, I would, I would, you know, celebrate every little success. And I also did what I call the baby food method. So if I had a, a word count goal of writing 600 words for the day, I would chuck it out into hundred word segments mm. and I built in breaks. And so I'm a big believer in daydreaming. And I know the neuroscience behind the, 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 the necessity to give ourselves breaks and to take walks and to think about something else, cook, you know, or fold the laundry or, you know, and, and then come back to, so that's how I literally wrote the book. And when I delivered it, in September, it was far from perfect. Uh, I had a lot of, of hard feedback that I had to take it. And then I had to deliver again in a, in a really short amount of time. Fortunately, there's something, there's all sorts of editors in publishing, but fortunately there, there's something called a developmental editor. And the developmental editor I wrote was the most compassionate and simultaneously uh, constructively critical person to give me feedback on the writing. And that's how I got to that final grind was, and her name is Danielle Goodman. I want to give her a shout out because she's really good at what she does. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Very cool. Um, so going back just for a second into your daydreaming, because you, you touched on that and that's got a little bit of a mysticism element to it as well. So now I'm curious, how do you incorporate that into your daily practice? I love, I love your, your very, um, and then I have a question about being an ambivert as well, because that's something that I'm trying to become. I'm trying to pare back the extroversion to become oh. a little bit more of an ambivert. Um, but so how do you incorporate that daydreaming in a I don't want to say methodical because that kind of takes away from it. Right. Forced daydreaming almost seems a little silly. But do you use a, a, a particular type of visualization exercise? Uh, meditation, something like that? Or do you just go, like you said, do something that shuts your conscious mind down and let your subconscious mind roll with it kind of thing? One of the best triggers for daydreaming is staring at the clouds. Hmm. For example, clouds, uh, I think it's, it's something very visceral about being human and, and the perspective of little us on earth and looking at the expansiveness of sky but just being able to look up at the sky and watching the drift of clouds, the shift in color for me is a really easy way to engage. I also time my daydreams. I'll set a timer for five minutes just to daydream. You also have to understand you're talking to a woman who I've been a really great daydreamer since I was a kid. So, you know, my report cards were always uh, sprinkled with comments like, Oh, Natalie's doing well in school but she kind of daydreams a little too much and we have to kind of rein her in. And like, that's just the way I've always been. 
And so now I just embrace it, but I actually, I actually do do forced, uh, I do time myself and I make myself go out. I'm, I'm from Philly. We're a front steps, front stoop culture, yeah. mm-hmm. just sitting outside on the steps and just like letting my mind wander and then going back in the house and finishing what I need to work on. That's, that's, if you want to call that a technique, that's some stuff that I do. I love it though. I, I think it's fascinating because uh, I like you, I empathize totally. When I was a kid, it was the same thing. His grades are pretty good and he seems to get it, but we cannot get him to shut up, sit still and uh, pay attention in class. So that, <laughs> Hey, maybe that leads to something great later on. Absolutely. Uh, very cool. Very, very cool. Uh, I can't wait to to read the book that you have coming out. What can we expect in the book more or less? Obviously, don't give away the farm so that people can go and buy it and read it. But at a high level, what what types of information will you have in the book? I would say that if you are a person who's trying to get an accessible understanding of what creativity is, you will find this book a really enjoyable read. Um, It's sprinkled with anecdotes. I interviewed over 50 people who come from law and farming and beauty and cosmetics and um, consulting to understand how wonder and rigor and creativity shows up in their work. So you'll find it, uh, each chapter ends with a question prompt that as a, as a provocation and invitation for you to start practicing uh, creativity. Um, So I think that people will find it inspiring. I think they'll find it totally accessible and very practical because I wanted it to not be academic at all, but to be um, a real useful and engaging way for people to explore their own relationship with creativity. Because the premise of the book is that in the future of work, in this fourth industrial revolution, we can't keep treating creativity as this fluffy add-on. It is absolutely a competency that we must exercise. The World Economic Forum has ranked creativity as within the top three job skills that people must master where technology is ubiquitous. Um, I also have developed a card game called the Wonder Rigor Discovery Deck. And that's um, a real fun way for teams to figure out based on a problem that they're working on. You can, people have given me feedback that they play it at the dinner table, um, but it's a series of provocations to help you figure out how much more rigor do we need to bring in a process? How might we do that? And how much more wonder, et cetera. Awesome. Very, very cool. Uh, I can't wait to read it. Like I said, now shifting to your being an ambivert. And it's funny that you bring this up because I've been actually Googling and kind of trying to research uh, in the last last two, three weeks, um, how to become more of an ambivert, just so I can be more empathetic (laughs) in part because a quick sidebar about myself. Uh, because of us being in COVID-19 quarantine, um, I've had a lot of opportunity to self-reflect and to kind of, um, you know, pursue things that I, that I've maybe set aside, like learning to play the guitar or whatever, you know, just personal stuff, but through meditation and through, um, some of the other stuff I've been working on with my, my own mentor, um, I've been exploring this other side. He, he, my mentor had me take you know, one of those online, are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Um, quizzes, uh, a psychology today. So it was fairly, um, um, uh, fairly, uh, uh, what, what would you call it? Fairly, um, uh, robust or no, uh, like meaningful, uh, okay. fa- fairly meaningful because it was from psychology today. And it said I was a 99% extra extrovert. 
Wow. Off the charts, <laughs> extrovert. And everything that you said is true. I get energy from being around other people. So this has been very difficult for somebody like right. me. Um, but it's also forced me in sort of a Buddhist context, for lack of a better term, to focus on the things that suck that I normally would avoid, like the plague, like being alone or like just sitting downstairs by myself. So it's really given me the opportunity to work on my weaknesses. And I found a unique shift back into the middle in a more balanced way. And that kind of led me to looking up ambiverts or, or becoming an nice. ambiversion. But nobody really talks about that. I mean, loosely no. here and there, you'll see articles. So I'm surprised that you brought that up. What are how did you become an ambivert, first of all? And how do you maintain that? How do you maintain that 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 balance between the energy? Well, I think we are what we are, you know, but I, I, I had only like you, I had only heard of extroversion and introversion. I knew I wasn't an introvert, uh, but there's a part of me that is a real loner. Like I love being by myself. I really do. Like I can, if, uh, when, when our daughter, what she, she's a freshman in college now, but if, if, my husband said, uh, me and Sid are going to go out to the mall for the afternoon. afternoon. I'd be like, okay, that's fine because <laughs> I, I, I can curl up and read a book or cuts around the house or, you know, I, I really enjoy being to myself. Right. And so I thought, huh, that doesn't seem quite like an extrovert. And I don't know how, I don't remember how, but I, I tripped over this, this term of ambivert and it really helped me to understand, especially that the definition of introversion, extroversion is really based on how you are energized, right? If you're energized more by being to yourself and you tend to be much more observant, being observant is a trained skill I've developed as a qualitative researcher. I can be very impulsive. I need to often learn to be more observant. I'll jump right into something. Um, I love talking to people and asking people questions. That's the extroversion part. But the way I'm energized, I can, I can literally fill myself at a dinner party, at a cocktail party, at a conference, when it's almost like the system is going zoom, like right. everything is shutting down. And right. I'm like, okay, I need to retreat and go back to my room or just go to someplace quiet. I can literally feel it happening. Um, so I think that it all comes down to self-awareness. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, do you, um, do you meditate just out of curiosity? And we could cut this later if you wanted to, but if you do meditate, what is your meditative process? What do you usually go to at a high level? So I actually, I don't think I would call it meditation, but I do have morning prayer. Uh, it's, it's quiet time for me. Um, it's a time for me to go inward. It's a time for me to be reflective. It's a time for me to connect to what I believe is, is, is God and something much mm -hmm. greater than myself, which gives me a, kind of an odd comfort. Um, and something I just started doing actually during COVID-19, I've been talking and writing about how we have to develop new rituals for ourselves because COVID-19 has made us feel a bit like it's Groundhog Day every yeah, day. Right. So the new morning ritual I have is that I, I've been getting to bed between 9.30 and 10. Uh, I wake up at 6 a.m. I am not allowed to hit snooze. I do not hit snooze. And now I'm like on day nine or 10. So far, so good. And um, between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m., I do my morning hygiene. I do my um, morning prayer, reading, reflection, and journaling. And it's not about length in the journaling. It's just about gratitude and writing down a few things. 
Um, and then I do, uh, I stretch my body. I studied dance for many, many years. So I just commit to 15 minutes of just a floor stretch. Um, and by 7am, again, I have a home office, so I'm, I'm at my laptop ready to go. And I think the biggest benefit of this morning ritual is just like, it's a promise to myself that I'm keeping. It centers me. And, um, but to answer your question, the closest I, I would say in terms of meditation is, is that, um, that prayer and that mm-hmm. journaling yeah. and, and that quiet time. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was, that was very nice of you. Thanks uh, for asking. Yeah. And thank you for your time. I think this has been absolutely fascinating, jam packed with a ton of information, <laughs> I think, and, and wish you a lot of success with your book and with figure eight thinking as a whole going forward. If people want to work with figure eight thinking or they just want to reach out and get to know you a little bit better, what are the best ways to connect with you? Oh, thank you so much, Tony, for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate all your curiosity. If people want to learn more about what a creativity strategist does and the work of figure eight thinking, please go to figure eight thinking.com. That's F I G U R E the number eight thinking.com. You'll see a prompt if you're interested at the top banner of the website to uh, join, uh, sign up for the newsletter and receive a free sample chapter of the Creativity Leap. I'd love for people to join the community and to stay in touch um, as as I evolve and learn and grow. So definitely visit figure8thinking.com and there's all sorts of resources there. Yeah, I'm going to go click on it right now. And everybody that's listening to it should go get this free chapter. I I think you're an amazing human being. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful episode. Thank you so much for this uh, information. This was great. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tony. I love talking with you. Thank you.